welcome friends in the room, friends of Fort Worth, Houston. Get excited. El Paso, Phoenix, Nashville, Mint Hill, North Carolina, Southampton, Philadelphia, wherever you are joining us from, Fayetteville, and friends here tonight. Who's familiar with the term love language? Okay, all right. By show of hands, who in this room would say they are an acts of service love language person? Okay, a few. What about quality time? Yeah, there you go. Um, touch? What about all my gifts, people? Words of affirmation? Okay. If you're not familiar with any of those, basically some guy came out with a book, made a killing convincing the world that everyone has one of these five love languages. I don't know if that's biblical, but it's somewhat helpful. And let me tell you about my love language. So me and my wife have different love languages. The theory of the book is everyone has at least one love language. Sometimes you have a couple of them, but typically people have a predominant one, maybe, maybe two predominant ones. My love languages would be acts of service and physical touch. Acts of service, physical touch. Serve me, touch me. Serve me again. That's all I want, man. My wife's love language would be quality time and words of affirmation. So quality time, she doesn't care if I'm out mowing the lawn. She doesn't care if I like clean up the house, do any service. She just, she's great to like sit in filth, just you and I, just sitting together. This is great. Not quantity time, quality time, the two of us. Or cards, notes, words of affirmation. This is the stuff that makes her feel loved. And I tell all that because there was a time not recently, or that was recent, where it was Mother's Day this past year. I had a plan, got some gifts together, Decided that I was going to get my wife this necklace with like our, our kids' names on it. And then I got her a massage. I know husband of the year. I had gotten her this card and I just like had the day planned out. We were going to go to this brunch and breakfast. And we woke up that morning and I, uh, I gave her the, the kind of gifts that I had given. The card, I had had my son, who's three and a half, write and fill out. It was kind of like, oh, this will be sweet. And I'll have him like write the card he can't write words, so he just writes with a crown, like some colors inside of there. And I thought that was brilliant and genius and, you know, husband of the year, no big deal. And I give her the whole gift package, give it to her, and uh, she's like, this is great. And the breakfast kind of goes on, or we're at breakfast having brunch, and, and, um, and then we get home from that breakfast, and we're getting ready to, like, put kids down for naps. And I look at her, and um, she's, like, over by the kitchen sink, and she's, like, like emotional, I could tell that you're like, oh man, she's like upset about something right now. And I don't know if it's like, oh man, look, I've just touched you so deeply with my thoughtfulness. <laughs> and she's like, she says, I feel like you don't know me at all. You didn't write me a card? And I am like, and this moment I go, well, I had him write in the card. That was the sweetest thing ever. And she was like, I, don't, I know, but that's great. But you didn't get a card from you to me? And it was a realization that my attempt at expressing love was not received in the way that I thought it was going to be received. <laughs> because our definitions of love and love languages and what love looks like are different. I've learned from that. And now every single time, no matter what, if it's a Wednesday, here's a card that I've written for you. <laughs> and uh, it's not entirely true. Don't give me, that's not at all true, actually. So don't give me credit for that. But point being, I will not make that mistake again. And I start there because... In our marriage, we have different definitions of what love looks like, what love is. Like I said, for me, it's acts of service and you know, physical touch. For her, it's gonna be quality time or hearing things written out and words described to her. And our definitions are different. What does that have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Well, we're continuing the series, Instagram Theology. What's Instagram Theology? We are looking at some of the more popular cultural mantras that people throw out there and people say, on Instagram or just kind of in life that there's a lot of, of uh, culture behind it, but they're half truths at best. And tonight, just like my wife and I had different definitions of what love looks like and what love is, there's an Instagram mantra called love is love. Whereas culture, we basically say like, hey, look, you know, we may agree to disagree and have different definitions of what love looks like, of what love is, of when love is appropriate, but let's just agree, like love is a great thing, and so let's kind of keep it at that. Like our culture has embraced that there are different definitions of love, but as long as it's love, that is what matters most. People will use the phrase love is love, which is what we're gonna talk about for the next 30 minutes or so. 
to uh, encourage different relationships that you may have heard of. People underneath the banner of love, it basically, if you haven't heard that term, it basically is kind of like, you know, love is blind. It knows no religion. It knows no sex or gender. It is what most important is that there is love there. Don't be confined by anything else. It's the most powerful force in the universe. And so we may disagree on what love is supposed to look like, but as long as love is there, that is a beautiful thing. And there's something true about that. But there's also something really wrong about that. And as we said throughout this series, Anytime that, you know, culture begins to step in the direction of things that God said, this is something you don't define, I define. It comes with tremendous consequences when we abandon God's definitions. In other words, when you begin to talk about like different definitions of this is what love looks like or this is love, the Bible says that God, who is love, defines it. And he gives a definition of what love is to look like. So we're going to look for the next handful of minutes of what is wrong with some of the more popular ideas as it relates to love is love. People will marry someone of a different faith underneath the idea or in the name of, hey, love is love. People will push for marrying someone of the same sex underneath the idea that, you know, love is love. And, you know, love, how could love ever be a bad thing? So we're going to talk about how could love be a destructive and bad thing? The truth about love is love, or one of the things that's true, is love is incredibly powerful. Love is incredibly powerful. And you can fall in love with someone that God would say is not who he calls you to marry. You can fall in love with someone regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their religion. The love is an incredibly powerful thing. I went to a John Mayer concert last week. John Mayer would not be selling out American Airlines Center if love did not exist, or particularly if women did not exist. <laughs> because I'm sitting there literally in the room, and I know I'm gonna get pushback from the guys who are like, I love John. If women didn't exist, John would not be selling out American Airlines Center. He would be working at Guitar Center. He's clearly a very talented guy, but there's not guys who are like, yeah, I'm going to pay $200 to sit there and play Gravity, please. I love that one. And uh, love is a powerful thing. It leads people to make decisions, spend money, spend their time, their attention, their focus. I mean, it moves us. Love is incredibly powerful. But love in a direction that God says it's not the direction of what love truly is supposed to look like can be an incredibly powerful thing that is also incredibly dangerous. So we're gonna look for the next handful of minutes at three ideas. What is wrong with love is love? And I'm gonna answer that. Why God, who's there, would have anything to say or may not always be crazy about all forms of, quote, love. And then what does it look like to have love in your life that looks like the love of God or, or God's love? What does that look like? So the first one, what could possibly be wrong with love is love? Here's the first idea. When love is love, love becomes a God. Like when love is love, and using that phrase, whenever it's like, hey, you know what, love is love, as a justification that, hey, you can't really explain it, and you know, I was caught up in the moment, and it's a sweeping force, and you can't control who you're in love with, and we just fell into love together, and it's used for a Christian, and I'm talking just to Christians primarily in this message. When it becomes something that a Christian uses to justify living or relationships that contradict God's word, you are no longer underneath the control of the Holy Spirit, control of yourself, you're basically saying like, hey, I couldn't help it. I was swept up in love. And love is no longer some you know, thing that is just a part of a romantic relationship. Love becomes your God. Love becomes the thing that controls you. You're helpless. You're at its will. You're at its mercy. And anytime that a Christian justifies relationships that contradict God's word, whether it would be with someone of an opposite faith or someone of, not an opposite faith, of a different faith, or someone of the same sex, it communicates that, hey, love is God. At the end of the day, I'm not responsible for who I fall in love with. And love would lead me to do this. And that, the tragic thing, is that it begins to make love become God. What do I mean? Because God is love, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I mean, by love becoming your God, it's like I, it presents the idea as though, man, I had to or I have to because the heart wants what it wants. And I was moved by the love God, if you will. And when that happens, it can be an incredibly dangerous thing. It's happening all over our culture right now where people under the banner of love is love are buying that lie and it's making love a God. What do I mean? I don't know if you guys remember Woody Allen. Woody Allen is uh, a very famous movie director. Woody Allen had, uh, you know, Midnight in Paris. There's been tons of films, very successful movie director. He married someone named Mia Farrow. 
back in the 1980s. And Mia was just another kind of celebrity person on the scene. And they had a family together. Here's the family of them together. If you know Woody Allen, that's Mia in the middle. Here's some of their kids. I think this is like their second or third marriage, but that baby boy is actually the two of them. And this is her adopted daughter and her kids over here, and they married. Five years after they had their little baby boy, uh, he began a relationship, Woody Allen, with the girl that's on the right there. And he began to have a sexual relationship, and today he's married to the woman who was formerly his stepdaughter. And you know what he said whenever he was interviewed? Because people, as, as you would imagine, were like, oh, awkward, that's a little creepy. He did an interview with Time Magazine, and at the end of the interview, he basically was like, look, it's not that big of a deal. And here was the famous line, you probably heard it, because it's been picked up by others. The heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone, and you fall in love, and that's that. And he's basically saying, hey, love is love, and... and his scenario, love is his God. I can't be responsible for who I fall in love with. Other scenarios that are even more extreme, because at that one, there may be some part of you that's like, oh, you know, it wasn't his biological. Is that that big of a deal? But we would all have a line where we would say, hey, love is love is not okay if love leads you to do this. Underneath that definition, I think most of us would have some line where we draw. We're like, no, love is not love there. That's creepy or illegal. An example that... I mean by that is, you guys heard of NAMBLA? There's an association called NAMBLA, which stands for National Association of Man-Boy Love. It's a group that basically says they were born with urges to love children. And they push for and try to legislate to get uh, Congress to remove the requirements you have to be of a certain age in order to have love. In other words, if it's consensual with a young child, if there's you know, boys out there that want to engage in that, then we should be able to do that. And I, my point in bringing that up is not because I think that's a tremendously common thing in the room, but it's at least a point where we would all go, hey, love is love, and that scenario is not okay. I don't care who's consenting, that's over the line, that's not okay. If you make love your God and that's where your God leaves, not okay. But as a society, this increasingly is something that we see, and it becomes, it's become almost comical. You guys, I don't know if you saw this dude in Argentina who recently decided he was gonna marry a tree underneath the banner of love is love. That happened. I'm not even sure what to even address at that point. A woman recently, I think it was a couple weeks ago, who decided in, in the UK to marry her dog after four broken engagements. This is her, they actually went through with it. And all of those, I mean, they're just like, dude, that's nuts. That's so extreme. The line is so far out there. But this is a result or is a line of thinking that is consistent with the idea that, man, hey, love is love. I'm not responsible. And love's going to lead me where it may. And it reflects the idea that love is God. Now, here's where it becomes relevant to the room. All of us do this at some level. Or many of us still do this. Like, you don't put the line at dog or a tree as being kind of the line that, you know, uh, you can't go farther than that. But any time that we put the line where God doesn't put it, we're putting it, and we're saying, man, love is love, and because we love each other, it's okay. If you're dating someone who's not a believer in Jesus, they're of a different faith, you are moving the line, just like somebody saying, you know what, it's okay as long as I move the line over to a dog, because it doesn't align with God's word. If you're doing it and you're like, man, he just calls himself a Christian and you're dating someone and under the name of love is love and we love each other and I'm working with him and maybe he's gonna get it together, you're doing the same thing. You're moving the line where God doesn't say you should move it. If you're dating someone and you're introducing sex into the relationship or you're living together and you're like, it's okay, we're married in God's eyes, you know, love is love, you're doing the same thing where you're taking your filter and using love and blaming on love the actions that you have. You basically go and love is my God. I have to do this, even if God says not to. Jesus said, the line is not where you put it, where they put it, but he clearly articulates, here's the type of love that God loves to see and the context for human love to take place in a romantic way. He says this in Matthew chapter 19, when God was on the planet, he stood up and he was asked about marriage and here's what he said marriage is. Matthew 19 verse five and six. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, God, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus' definition 
of the context for which love should take place, the type of love that God loves, is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage for life. The Apostle Paul would go on to add that it would be one man, one woman who are both believers following Jesus. The direction of their life is following Jesus. One man, one woman for life. That's really what God says is to be the love that marks his people. Why would God not love all forms of love? Like what's the big, what's the big deal to have love outside of you know, a um, relationship between one man and one woman in marriage for life? Like what is the big deal? How could anyone be opposed to like these beautiful you know, same-sex couples who are together or couples even if they're of different faiths, they've learned to work it out and it's kind of a beautiful thing together. How could God be opposed to that? It's so beautiful. The reason is, is because God loves you more than he loves love. The reason is that God loves you more than he loves any earthly definition of love. And he loves you so much that anything that's going to hurt you or anything that's going to hurt me or anything that hurts people, by definition, he cannot love. And so as it relates to relationships that contradict God's design and how he created marriage and love to take place, of course he's not going to. Because he knows that, hey, if you reject God's design, it comes with consequences inside of your life. The two most common ways, or two most common types really of love that, that are relevant and applicable to this room, that God doesn't love because he loves you, is relationships, dating relationships and married relationships between a believing Christian and a non-believer. A believing Christian and someone who's Hindu, a believing Christian and someone who's Muslim, a believing Christian and someone who's Jewish or not or atheist, between a believing Christian and someone who is not, is a relationship that the Bible teaches you are to get out now if you're in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes exactly about this and speaking to marriage here. Do not be yoked together, which is an agricultural term for basically oxen would be yoked together. They'd put two by one another and they'd throw a yoke on and you were unequally yoked if the oxen moved in different directions or not in the same direction. And Paul says, hey, just like that, when it comes to your life, you should be connected and partnered in marriage with people who are moving in the same direction. With unbelievers, don't do it. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? The Bible teaches that you are to be in relationship, not with someone who claims to be a Christian or even uses that title, but someone who's following Jesus. Why would it be a bad idea? Like, why is God not cool with that? Like, maybe, you know, you as their friend or you're dating them, you could be a part of bringing them to God. Why would he not be on board with that? A couple reasons. Because it hurts you. It hurts your faith. If you marry someone who's not of your same religious background or doesn't have your faith in Christ, here's what you're guaranteeing yourself. One of two options. You will either cap your relationship with Christ or cap your relationship with that person. You're either going to cap your relationship. In other words, like if you marry someone and they're not a Christian, you're either going to be like, hey, uh, you know, we don't have to go to church. It's not that big of a deal to me. It's not really that important. I care about you. And so let's do whatever you want to do. And you're going to cap your relationship with Jesus. The person you say is most important in my life, which is what a follower of Christ does. Or you're going to cap your relationship with that person because you're going to go all in and you're still trying to follow Jesus and they won't necessarily always be on board with that. And so you're spending your time different. Your values are different. You're either going to cap your intimacy with your spouse or with Jesus, which inevitably is going to hurt you and hurt your faith and your marriage. Second ways that it hurts you is marrying someone who is of a different faith. And if you're not here, all of us may have siblings or friends and people in our lives that are entering into relationships with someone who's not a follower of Christ. 45% of marriages in the last 10 years were between people of two faiths in America, two different faiths, 45%, almost one in two. In doing so, studies show you triple your uh, chances of getting a divorce. In other words, whatever it is right now, and it's already pretty high, you are tripling the likelihood that you're gonna get a divorce. Upwards of 75% of non-same faith relationships, marriages, end in divorce. 
You're almost guaranteeing that the children that you raise are gonna walk away from the church. When there's one believing spouse or one practicing faithful person, studies have shown that there is a 2% chance, a 2% chance that your children are going to walk up and be practicing believers in that faith of the mother if she's a practicing believer and the father's not. 2% chance. You are statistically guaranteeing 98% chance your children will not, if they grow up in that home, have a faith in Jesus. And finally, you're hurting the person you're dating. You're showing them a weakened expression of Christianity, like, hey, it's important, but it's not as important with you as you. And you're showing them some weakened version that's like, yeah, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I can kind of live however I want, and you should try it out sometime. Let me be emphatically clear. If you are dating someone who is not a Christian, and if you date a non-believer, you are in direct rebellion to God. And if you say, but I love him clearly, and you love him more than you love God, because God's word has made it clear. I don't care how you met, how much chemistry you have, how much electricity when you touch each other and you like all the same jokes and we love watching movies. If they don't share your faith, you need to hit the ejection button now. And the God who's there is not angry and he's not trying to just move you out of having relationships. He's trying to move you away from the direction of pain and hurt and the future that's in store. The second type of relationship that I think often we wonder, like how could God be against that? Is the uh, same sex relationships. I mean, when we go in life and we bump into friends and, and all of us have friends, we know people or siblings or family members or um, roommates, and we come in church on Tuesday and they're like, hey, God is not for same-sex relationships. It's only hetero. And then you go and you're around these people and they're like, man, I just, from as long as I can remember, I've only been attracted to women and I'm a woman or I've only been attracted to men and I'm a man. How could God want something different for them? Why would God want something different for them? And what I'm about to share, I, I wanna share just to paint a little bit of a picture to align why the heart of God which is always for people and always loves people, why would he not love a love? And the answer would be because it is hurtful to that person and ultimately unloving in the long term. And I know it doesn't always feel that way. And so what do I mean by that? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Romans chapter 1, and in other places that same-sex relationships are not God's design. And the reason he's not for them is because it is a rejection of God's design. He designed one man, one woman to come together in a specific way and in the context of marriage. And any time that you and I reject the creator's design, there's consequences that follow. Anytime that I don't follow the instructions of the creator, there's a great chance the consequences are gonna come as a byproduct of that. Uh, I mean, we see this in life all the time. I mean, I, um, I, because I'm an acts of service person, will do the laundry in our house. I'll go up to my closet, share with my wife, get the you know, dirty clothes all together, the clothes that are on the floor, stuff them in the uh, laundry hamper, bring them downstairs, throw them in the washing machine, husband of the year again, doing all the laundry. The number of times this next thing has happened is astounding to me. We need to get this fixed. My wife will go into the laundry room. She'll begin to pull some of the clothes out that I've washed and she'll go, did you wash this dress? It's cashmere. Are you serious? And I'm like, why was it on the floor then, lady? Give me a break. Hopefully I don't say that. But point being, I failed. She's like, didn't you read the instructions? Whoever reads the instructions on clothes? I'm not gonna like read each one. Okay, this one's good. Okay, this one's good. Uh -huh. Oh, put this one over here. Okay, this one. who reads the instructions? I don't. Wise people, she said. <laughs> people who would save so much money on ruining their wife's dresses. And it's like, we're, we're just gonna have to put this on a doll or something because it doesn't fit. But in failing to read the instructions or to follow the instructions of the designer, it creates consequences. 
And in the same way, that's really, really the picture the Bible paints. Is really God created the world, he created you, he created life to be found in a certain way. And when we reject the creator's design, there's consequences that come with it. And if the Bible is true, and if God is who he says he is, and if he created a design as it relates to sexuality and relationships in a specific way, anytime we reject his design there, it comes with consequences. What do I mean by consequences? Living in a same-sex relationship and lifestyle has impacts mental health-wise, in terms of life expectancy, and in terms of disease. The homosexual lifestyle has been associated with a 50% more likelihood of suffering from depression and substance abuse. 200% more likely to commit suicide, according to a medical journal of BMC Psychiatry. The first was from a recent study in the UK from health24.com. A lot of people say 200% more times to commit suicide. That's just because society is not accepting and it's too mean. That would make sense except for in the most tolerant, embracing societies and countries, the statistic is even higher. In European nations where countries have hardly any religious practice present and homosexual marriage is both encouraged and celebrated, there is a significant increase in suicide. Sweden, for one example, Sweden legalized same-sex relationships in 1944. The United States did in 2015. They made speaking against sexual orientation a crime as hate speech in 2003. It was recognized by the International Lesbian Gay Association to be the most gay-friendly gay -friendly country in Europe or the world. There, it's not a 200% increase in risk of suicide, it is a 300% increase risk of suicide. The decrease in life expectancy, the Eastern Psychological Association found that on average, regardless of the country, or regardless of the European and Western countries, the decrease in life expectancy is 20 plus years, both in gay relationships and lesbian relationships. The increased likelihood of disease, the United States Center for Disease Control in 2013 found that while only 3% of the population identifies as homosexual. It's responsible for 50% of the cases of syphilis, 60% of gonorrhea, 75% of all HIV cases in the past five years in America. Why is disease so rampant? Monogamy is an extreme minority. Studies have shown, and there was a study done in the Journal of Sex Research by two gay by a gay male couple, David and Andrew Madison, they did a study with 2,500 couples. And they studied for years these relationships. They found that not a single one of them in their study was able to maintain a monogamous relationship. On the average number of partners, they found the modal range for partners throughout their lifetime was between 100 and 500. And those relationships, it was not, in other words, 100 to 500 people they, they were sleeping with. That is not about love, that is about sex. And the God who's there, and I know a lot of these things, like, again, it's deeply personal, like we know people. But when you stand back and you go like, look, hey, love is love, and who am I to say, and it's not really my place, and do whatever you want, and in fact, you need to embrace how I live, and encourage it, and celebrate it, and champion it, and be like, oh, I'm all on board about it. And as Christians, as we're gonna get to in a second, our first priority is not someone's sexuality, it's Jesus. But at the same time, we can't encourage and applaud something that contradicts God's word and leads to tremendous consequences in this life. I mean, think about it this way. If I told you, or if a friend came to you and said, hey, I'm gonna move to a city. And in that city, I'm making this decision, I'm gonna move here. And you knew that if they moved to that city, they had a higher likelihood of being depressed, significantly more likely to have suicidal, or be suicidal, more likely to have anxiety, to use drugs, a higher likelihood to end up with disease and virtually statistically guarantee you're gonna take 20 years off of your life. Would it be loving to sit there and go, man, who am I to, you should go do that. It's awesome. And this is where it's hard sometimes being a Christian because you're like, man, I, I wanna make sure you know Jesus. That's what Jesus wants first and foremost. But I can't. If you're asking me to just sit back and celebrate it, that puts me in a really hard spot. 
That puts me being a friend, knowing that you're gonna move into a lifestyle that has significant consequences. Rejects God's word. Takes 20 years off of your life. And I'm supposed to sit there because I feel bad telling you that's not great and be like, yeah, man, love is love. This is awesome. Love that. And it's tragic. God's not angry. He loves people. Regardless of orientation. The Bible doesn't even talk about orientation. Let me articulate this too. There's a sharp difference between homosexual attraction and homosexual action. Homosexual attraction is, uh, some studies say one in five. It's all over the room. But there's a, a difference, the Bible says, between being tempted towards thoughts of the same sex and engaging in homosexual behavior. And further, engaging in that behavior and say, everyone better support me doing this, and if not, they're a bigot. As a Christian, you go, man, I... I love people, and I don't want to see them make decisions that are going to hurt them. And so if I have to just speak truth, and when I can, I want to do it humbly and just say, I don't, I don't know that this, if you're claiming to be a Christian, I do know this is not what God has for you. But God loves people, and so anything that hurts people is a love that he doesn't love. Finally, how... Do we as the church love like God loves? And I'm going to land here. If love is love is wrong because it makes like whatever I feel I have to do, love is your God. Why would God not love every type of love? Because any love that hurts people, God can't love. Because the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that by nature he is love. And so how, I wrote it in four C's, how do we as Christians Love like God loves. How do we love like God loves? First, is that when it comes to society, humanity, we communicate Christ first. The biggest list on God's agenda for everyone out there, whether they're messed up heterosexually, homosexually, polysexually, whatever their brokenness sexually is, and we all are broken sexually, the biggest agenda for every person on the planet, regardless of what they look like, where they live, how oriented they are sexually, is them knowing Jesus. And as a church, we do not focus on behavior and you should stop this right here and let me just tell you, you need to quit that right now, to non-Christians. We have no business telling non-Christians to change their behavior. It gives them the impression that God, if he's gonna accept them, they have to change how they behave. We point them to Jesus. Christians who point to culture and people who are not believers in Christ and say, stop acting that way. It's like, dude, stay in your lane, bro. Stay in your lane. We talk to Christians. We share the gospel with non-believers. We share God's word with believers. We call one another to living by God's word. But when it comes to what we share, we don't focus on behavior with society. It's confusing. And it's not what the Bible says we are to focus on. We share the message of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit brings behavioral change. But you didn't change before you became a Christian. You believe. And we focus on people believing or trusting in Jesus, not behaving. It's, it's like this. In, in my house, we have, we have rules. I have a three-year-old son. I think we have a picture of him. This is crew. And my son is, uh, he's, there he is. He's three and a half. He would, he would make sure, like, I'm not three, three and a half. And uh, we have different rules. What are some of the rules in the house? If you're going to live here, son, you've got to follow these rules. Here's some of the rules. When someone gives you something, you say thank you. When you ask for something, you say please. You are courteous. You don't hit your sister. That's a big one. You make sure that you don't spit out your food. You listen. You don't yell. You're kind to people. These are some of the rules in our house. Some behaviors that as a part of this family, you were to have. A couple weeks ago, or I guess uh, 10 days ago, we went to Atlanta. We were at a family deal in Atlanta, and we went to the aquarium in Atlanta. I don't know if you've been to the aquarium in Atlanta. It's a big deal, apparently. It's the number one aquarium in America, in case you're interested. Anyways, we're in town. You do what you do in Atlanta. You go to the aquarium. Go to the aquarium. We get there. Got our kids there. My wife, two kids. And it is like a nut house. It was the most packed environment we'd ever been in with children to date. I mean, it was just like shoulder to shoulder People love these fish in Atlanta. And so we're going in, we're seeing all the different things. And, and at one point, there's people everywhere. My son darts off. And, and we lost him. <laughs> it's not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs> but it was like, it, honestly, it was panic mode. And, uh, 
it's like, oh my gosh, where did he go? I can't see him. And you're like, he's three years old. He can't move that fast. Where could he possibly be gone? Where'd you see him go? What kind of mother are you? Are you serious? Where did he go? And we're looking everywhere and I can't find him. I'm retracing steps and I'm going back to like where he could have been. And I look over and I'm just like panicked. It felt like an hour. It's probably like 25 seconds, but it felt like forever. And we're looking everywhere for our son. And then I look over in the distance and he's holding the hand of an aquarium worker who's bent over and he's just like bawling his eyes out because he's like, he can't find his parents and she's trying to help him find his parents and I go over and I grab him. You know what didn't go through my head while we were separated from him? While I was like, man, this person that I love, I can't find him. I didn't begin to go, you know what, wherever he is, I just hope that he's behaving himself. I hope that he's saying please and thank you. Better not be hitting anybody. Better be very thankful when people give stuff. He better keep things in line and represent the family. No. I thought, where's my son? I care about my son. I'm separated from someone I love. I'm not going through like, oh, these behavioral things he better be doing right. I'm going through, man, there's someone that I love that I'm disconnected with, that I want to be restored back to. I can't find him. I'm separated from him. That's what the Bible says. God is a heavenly father. And when his children are separated from him, the concern of your heavenly father, as crazy as it would be for me as a dad to be like, yeah, this is great, but son, I want to hear exactly what you were doing while you were separated and how you were behaving. That's nuts. But that's what so many people, because the church has not stayed in its lane, think about when they think about God. They're separated from their heavenly father. And they think the heavenly father who's there is like, you know what? They, I don't know what, where they are, but I'm separated. And they better stop doing that and stop doing that and stop doing that. It's nuts. And the God in Luke chapter 15 that is there is presented as a father. That when his children or when people who are running from him, when they look in his direction, you know what it says? He's filled with compassion towards them and a heart that when they move towards God, God runs after them. Every person, regardless of their sexual orientation and the life that they're living, God's greatest concern is being restored back to their father, not them behaving while they're separated from him. So the first thing is we call people Christ. The second C is we're committed to loving people, not changing people. Loving people, not changing people. People are not projects to complete. They are people to love. The church does not offer conversion therapy. The Spirit of God is firmly responsible for change. In other words, it's not my job, it's not your job to try to change anybody. Our job is to love people, to present the gospel to people, and to trust the Spirit of God to bring about change in people's life. It is firmly the Spirit of God that restores and works through people's sexuality, but it is not projects or it's not my job anymore than it is your job to work through and to bring change. Only the Spirit of God can do that. It would be a disservice if I said, man, if somebody comes to Jesus, the Spirit of God will always change their sexual orientation. Because sometimes he doesn't. And he allows people to showcase, you know what? I trusted in Jesus. It's been years. And I thought he would change some of my desires for the same sex, but he hasn't. But he's enough. And if nobody goes with me, I'm going to follow him. And even my sexuality, I'll surrender to him. And as much as it would be a disservice for me to promise that he would change, it would also be a disservice for me to say that he never does. Because 1 Corinthians 6 says, such were some of you who practiced and lived homosexual lifestyles, but you were cleansed, you were washed, you were made new. And sometimes God does come in. The story's all over here where God and the spirit of God brings change in people's life. But the role of the church is to love people. We should be better lovers of the LGBTQ community than any other group. The acceptance, love, affirmation, all of those things, we have access to the source of them, which is God. And any community that loves better, shame on us as a church. And so loving people and care about them, caring about them and their story, where they're at. Finally, celebrating faithfulness to God's way. Or one more, celebrating faithfulness to God's way. What does it look like to have God-like love? God is a God who we're told when people are faithful and they follow him and they go all in and they surrender their life, 
and they're walking with him. There's gonna come a day where he goes, man, well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew chapter 25, verse 23 says, so to those of you in the room who are handling your singleness, God's way. In other words, you're deciding that, hey, you know, I could go get married tomorrow. I could get on 17 dating apps. I could lower the bar right down here and I could get married and I could do it. And I could, you know, cross boundaries sexually because that's what most guys out there, most girls out there are gonna be willing to do and I could do all of that. But I'm choosing to say, Jesus, you're enough. And if I'm single forever, you're enough. And I really hope that's not the case, but I believe you're enough. And so help me to trust and help me to know and help me to walk in that. I'm so, so, so proud of you. You inspire me, you strengthen my faith. For the people in the room who have same-sex attraction and you find yourself going, is God ever gonna allow me to have someone, a type of relationship that I hear other people having, that other people wanna look forward to or even can look forward to? And when I think about it, I'm filled with despair and honestly, a grief that I may not ever have that in this life. But Jesus, you're enough. Though none go with me, I'm gonna follow you and I'm walking after and I'm not gonna listen to lies of the community around me that's telling me, man, you were born this way. God doesn't care. God, you have saved me. You're good. You're for me. And I believe you. You are enough. Help me to believe that you are enough. You inspire me. You strengthen my faith. You make me wanna follow Jesus more. I'm so, so proud of you. I couldn't say that enough. And, and you can golf clap or not, I don't care but I need you to hear me. I'm so proud of you. You strengthen this church. You strengthen the church of God. May God multiply your kind because you live in a world that tells you to lie every single day. You should do whatever you want and who cares if some book of the Bible says you shouldn't. And you look those people in the face and you say, Jesus is enough. He's my king. I will follow him. I'm not gonna follow the ways of this world. And I'm so proud of you. And you make me want to follow Christ. Because here's the honest thing. You can't coast. There's a lot of people in the room. You're not engaged in homosexual sin, but you're looking at pornography every day. And it's just as offensive to God. It's just as offensive. Candidly, the most prevalent sin here is not homosexual sin, it's heterosexual sin. And it is just as offensive to God. You're crossing boundaries physically and it is just as offensive to God. And if you do it under the name of love is love or just because you are in love, it is an offense to God who loves you, who doesn't want you to feel the shame and guilt that you feel right now even as I'm talking. He wants you to have just relationships that flourish in line with his will and in line with his way. But to those of you who are walking faithfully, well done, I'm so encouraged, you humble and convict and strengthen me and make me want to go all in more with God. Finally, the final C is to confess sin. It is hard or impossible to love people if you are not healing and healing from the own sexual sin or your own sexual sin inside of your past. That you would be in relationships with other people where you can confess current struggles. Because let's be honest, dude, there's not a guy in this room or for the most of us, like, like people being shocked about, I can't believe you looked at pornography. Are you kidding me? In a second, you're gonna have access to naked women everywhere? It's never surprising to me. It's like that, that uh, old, uh, what was the commercial where it's like, that was easy, that was easy. Staples. Staples, that's how sexual sin is. It's like, oh man, yeah, well, you know, she's my girlfriend and she wants, you know, take her clothes off with me. That was easy. Okay. It's so surprising when sin happens. And if you don't have people in your life that you can confess, like, hey, I'm being tempted to look at pornography right now. I, I pulled up pictures on Instagram, and honestly, I was just looking for a girl in a bikini pic. Or, hey, me and my boyfriend, we're crossing boundaries, and I haven't told anybody. Your faith, there's a roaring lion who looks to kill and destroy Named Satan, he wants to kill your relationship. He wants to kill your relationship with Christ. He wants you to stay alone and in shame. Faith lives in the light and it dies in the dark. Sin lives in the dark and it dies in the light. And if you don't have people, that's why we harp on community. You've gotta have people you can confess. Past sexual sin, sexual relationships, current sexual sin of any form, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever it is. Some of you, you need to get rid of your smartphone tonight. You need to add covenant eyes to your computer, to your iPad, to your phone, whatever it is. I couldn't 
encourage, if pornography is a part of your story like mine, adding the software of Covenant Eyes, there's something called Triple X Church, which is another software. I know a lot of you are like, what are you talking about? If that is in your story right now, Covenant Eyes, it's a software to add on there that allows for accountability for you to not make decisions that pull your faith in a direction you don't want it to go to. We all get thirsty, but it is not okay when I'm thirsty to go drink from the toilet. But I gotta be honest. I wanna go drink from the toilet a lot. And I need people that I could say, man, I, I am having thoughts about a past sexual relationship or about someone that I saw at work or about somebody who posted something on Instagram. And I need you guys to pray for me, to know, and to follow up and ask me, do you have those types of relationships? And I don't know what it is, and I know this may even have like a guy been to it. I know there's a lot of girls that struggle with the same thing. Whatever your struggle is, do you have people in your life that you can be open and honest with? Maybe tonight the best thing you could do is to just open up with someone in your community group to share. To share that thing you thought you were going to take to the grave that you've never told anyone. And you'll release its power because sin and the power of it dies in the light, but it lives in the dark. Finally, what does the love of God or God love look like? And I'll close here. I know that as common as, as sin of sexual past or sexual present is, and living in a way that God says in his word is not how he wants you to, or how he wants for you, what he wants for you. Equally as common is the lie that, man, because of my past, I'm damaged goods. Because of the things that I've done, because of the relationships that I've been a part of, because of all the decisions that I've made, like I'm damaged goods. And if there's a godly guy or a godly girl out there, like everything you're talking about, preacher, that's all cool. But that's not going to work out here in the real world. Like we live in planet Earth. And so it's really cool when we're in here on church and you kind of talk about stuff and I'm encouraged. But when I go back to my normal life, there's just not godly guys out there. There's not godly girls out there. And there's not people that are going to be interested in someone with my past, with my struggles, with my problems. And to you, I want to say, how will a godly guy look at you? If that's part of your story, if it's a part of where you are right now, how is a godly guy going to look at you? Like Jesus did. Which brings the question. How did Jesus look at people in the midst of their sexual brokenness, in the midst of having a sexual past, in the midst of making decisions that were not God's will as it relates sexually? We're actually told a story of his interaction with a woman who was caught flat out in the midst of her sexual brokenness. And a godly guy will not look at you like anything other than how Jesus looks at you. A godly guy will look at you like Jesus looked. And we're told that Jesus has this woman thrown in front of him who's caught in adultery, in sexual sin. She's thrown out while Jesus is out teaching the crowds. And this group of religious leaders brings this woman in. It's in John chapter 8. And they bring this woman and they throw him down in front of him. And they begin to form a circle around him. And they say, Jesus, this woman was caught having sex with another man's wife, or another man's husband. And the law says that anyone who commits adultery like this is deserving of the death penalty to be stoned. What do you say? I mean, this woman is guilty by all accounts. This woman does not deserve for the Son of God to do anything other than say, man, that's, that's what the law cries for. What is God? God, creator of the heavens, moons, stars, all that is, every cell in your body, every person who's ever lived, formed you in your mother's womb, holds everything together. He walked on the planet for 33 years. And we're told there's a moment he's standing before a woman who's committed adultery. She just got through sleeping with somebody who was not her husband. She's married and this dude wasn't her husband. She's dragged in front of him and Jesus, he looks at the woman, looks at the crowd that just said, Man, she deserves to die, Jesus, what are you gonna do? And we're told he bends down on the ground and he begins writing with his finger. And we're told, we're not told what he writes and he just sits there for a second and then he stands up and he says, let the person who is without sin cast the first stone. 
And then he stands, sits back down, and he just writes in the ground again with his finger. And we're told that the crown from the oldest to the youngest just walked away. And then it's just the son of God and the adulteress. And he's bent over, and he looks at her, and he looks in the eye. He says, where is everyone who accused you? She said, they've all left. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. John chapter 8, verse 11. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus says, I don't condone. That's what he's saying. Hey, I don't condone what you were just doing. Let's just be abundantly clear. But I don't condemn you. And I'm inviting you and calling you to a life that is so much better and so much greater than what you are. Your sexual sin right now doesn't define you. It doesn't make me not want to have a relationship with you. And it doesn't disqualify you from being someone that God wants to use every part of your story, every part of your past, every part of your present to be someone that God writes an amazing story, either of redemption, an amazing story of protection, an amazing story of you showcasing in the world, Jesus is enough no matter what my love life looks like. And no sexual sin and no sexual past keeps the son of God from this woman or keeps him from you or keeps him from sexually broken people like me. But he doesn't condone and say, carry on. But neither does he condemn. You need to know a godly man, a godly woman will see you like Jesus sees you. You are not damaged goods. He is not done with you yet. But the choice is yours. So not embrace love is love with the God who is love and embrace his love for you. Let me pray. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who's believing the lie. Their sexuality is fixed and firm and must be obeyed. And they must follow wherever love leads. They would follow the God who is love who calls them to life, who loved them so much that he gave his life for them. You would dispense the lies all of us are tempted to believe. You would dispense the lies about our sexual past and you would be bigger and greater and have victory over those things in our hearts and in our minds. Would we love you more and would the relationships that we have as it relates to love be filled and defined by the love of God? Would we pursue purity? Would we find healing? And would we look more like our Savior, Jesus? Amen.